This week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you by The Art of Point and Click Adventure Games, the brand new title from Bitmap Books. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 141, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, we are very pleased this week to kick off something that we've been looking forward to and planning for months, actually. We officially kick off the Retro Hour's Adventure Month. Yes, and last week we had uh, Brett Mogolowski and he did a Grim Fandango, so that was a good start, wasn't it? Great little warm-up to Adventure Month. Now, essentially what we're doing over the next four weeks is we're going to be celebrating so much about one of the most beloved genres in video game history, and that is going to be interviews, it's going to be giveaways. Even live streams. Lots of live streams are going to be playing these games as well, all about, because I mean, you and I love adventure games. Oh, totally. I would. That was all that kept me indoors when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I was either out <laughs> skateboarding or playing point and clicks. Now, this week we've got an amazing guest as well. We've got the founder of Westwood Studios. Oh my God, Westwood Studios. You do not know how much of my life was soaked up by Command and Conquer. It was ridiculous. But also some of the fantastic games. Dune. Yeah. Do you remember that? And that was all based on a novel and they had the amazing Blade Runner as well, which is probably one of the most accurate best film adaptions. Yeah, because I mean, back then, a lot of film adaptations were essentially side-scrolling platformers, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. With like the name, that had nothing to do with it. But Blade Runner, I mean, that was a cult classic. Harrison Ford movie, obviously, and adapting that into a video game that was as well-received. Because, I mean, you know, cult audiences are very hard to win round if you don't do it properly. Totally. And, you know, Westwood kind of came from the days of doing dungeon crawlers and, and you know, really, really Apple II graphics and yeah. stuff like that. And then they went to full FMVs with Hollywood actors. Oh, it's an amazing story. This yeah, I mean, one. by the end, their games were coming out on like four or five CD-ROMs, weren't yeah. they? It was like, it's crazy. So our special guest this week, Lewis Castle, is going to be coming up. And we've got more. If you love adventure games, make sure you stick around in the next 10 minutes. A chance to win something amazing. Now, plenty of other things to talk about on this week's show. The Atari Jaguar virtual reality headset. Oh, yes, we had a Jaguar guest on uh, two weeks ago, Bill Rebock. Yeah, and uh, there's actually been a VR headset that has arrived in the UK, and uh, we're going to tell you where it is, and also get a little bit of the story on that. It's going to be quite interesting. And also a lost Nintendo console that we need to talk about in just a minute too. Now, before we get into that... Let's do a few shouts to our favourite people in the world, the people who allow us to keep coming and doing the Retro Hour podcast for you every single week. Those who make a little donation into the running of the show and throw a couple of quid, a couple of dollars, a couple of euros into our tip jar. And for doing that, you will find your place on the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week... Andy Gordon. Jonas Toliander. Kevin Lee and Carol Schmist, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same. We accept PayPal, a little button on our website, or cryptocurrency, if that's the kind of thing. You'll find all that on the front page of theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into all that, we did mention that it is Adventure Game Month on the Retro Hour podcast with this amazing new book, The Art of Point and Click Adventure Games, who are actually the first sponsor that we've ever had on the Retro Hour podcast in nearly three years. So we've got to give a big shout to Sam and the team at Bitmap Books for believing in this show enough to want to come on board with Adventure Month for the next four episodes. And, I mean, we've both read the book cover to cover. Some incredible stuff in there. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. Like, I think the thing about point-and-click adventures and even text adventures and everything is they haven't all been compiled in one place and they haven't had a massive list of interviewees like they have here. There's just some fantastic stuff. We interviewed Al Lowe yeah. and he had a big talk to us about how Jim Walls was uh, one of the guys who was an actual police officer and he kind of got the routine in the game. You know, he wasn't originally into video games but he got the whole police procedure down 
perfectly in that game. And uh, seeing an interview with him is just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this book is just a real celebration of point-and-click adventure games. A drawer that you and I have loved since we were kids. I mean, you got Allo in there, David Fox, Ron Gilbert, you know, Monkey Island fame. You couldn't do a point-and-click book without Ron Gilbert in there. Uh, Tim Schafer, Lewis Castle, who we're talking to in just a bits in the book too. And really... It is a visual celebration of these games, um, showing them in a gorgeous, you know, 460 pages, lithographic print hardback book. That thing would look amazing on your coffee table. It's got a proper quality weight to it, hasn't it? Yeah, totally. And also the companies as well. So, you know, you had Sierra, LucasArts, AdventureSoft, all these fantastic publishers. And, uh, you know, you kind of don't hear about them nowadays, do you really? Yeah, so we love the book so much. And in fact, we're giving you a chance to win your own copy of the book, the Art of Point and Click Adventure Games. So if you'd like to win, all you have to do is head onto our website at theretrohour.com, leave your details on there. We're going to pick a winner every week during Adventure Month on the podcast. And also there is a little link there if you want to go and buy the book for yourself as well. I mean, we're getting into that time of year, a nice little stocking filler that I make, wouldn't it? And look, you know, guys, we just really hope that you guys do show your support to Bitmap Books and uh, this book as well, because they believe in our podcast enough to get on board for the next couple of episodes. So please show them some love, get onto the website, check out the book, see what you think of it, and uh, we'll tell you more about Adventure Month over the next coming weeks. Now, we do need to talk about this. The biggest story in retro gaming over the last week, the PlayStation Classic has been announced. And it happened a day after we <laughs> recorded the podcast last week, so everyone oh, was tweets? asking us. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't you cover it on last week's show, guys? Have you not heard about it? Yeah, we recorded it on, like, what, Tuesday last week? Yeah. And it came out on, like, Wednesday morning. I did wake up to about 50 tags on Facebook and Twitter. I looked at all the comments when everybody was going, why are there no analog sticks? Yeah. Like, there never was analog sticks. And also, with the PlayStation 1, a lot of the old games did not support analog sticks. You turn on the analog function of one of those PS1 controllers and it just pours the game. <laughs> on, on the early ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the, the, just D-pad support only. Yeah, the Dual Shock didn't come out for about two years after the no. PlayStation came out originally. And you're right, because, I mean, I did want to cover it, so I actually just did a YouTube video the next day. So I thought we've got to be seen to be covering this. But you're right, the amount of comments that I've seen about it, it really has split the online retro gaming community, I think. Some people love these little mini consoles. Some people are a bit like, oh, that's enough now. When you're getting into like the CD kind of consoles, we've gone too far with it. Why wouldn't you just buy one from like a car boot sale for a five? Yeah, like I was thinking exactly this. I've got a Frame Meister at home and yeah. I've got a PlayStation that I bought from Batana, you know, and I do the swap trick. I've got as many games as I want on that thing, you know. <laughs> well, it is true. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you know, if you've been living under a rock for the last week, essentially it is a recreation of the PlayStation, but it's like a quarter of the size of the original. Again, like the NES of the SNES Mini, it's that kind of thing. HDMI out, couple of USB ports on the front to put in replicas of the original. Um, How many titles Earth. does it have? Well, there's 20 that are going to be built into it. So far, I mean, they've only confirmed five of them. So you've got Final Fantasy VII's on there, uh, Jumping Flash, that I don't think I've ever played that one, uh, Ridge Racer Type 4, Tekken 3, and Wild Arms are the five confirmed titles. Okay, good to see Tekken and uh, Final F Fantasy in there, definitely. Yeah, I mean, everyone's kind of got their own opinion on, you know, what games are one on there, I'm sure. And... You know, being Sony, I mean, they've got access to a lot of licenses. I imagine there will be some more of the big hitters on there too. But I said this in my video, that, and we said it before on the show about the other mini consoles. I think it kind of falls into two categories. It's either the guys like Joe, who's one of our co-presenters, who's the biggest Sega fan in the world, yeah. and, and Nintendo, he loves them. He buys all the mini consoles to keep them in a box on his shelf. Yeah. And look nice. For, for, for me, I think it's... Probably going to be for, for people who want that retro hit, but the main one that I'm waiting for is the N64 Mini yeah. because 
PlayStation is easy to emulate on the PC. Mm-hmm. And same with PlayStation 2. Uh, even if you have a PlayStation 2, you can still play PlayStation 1 games in oh, the there three. as well. Yeah, so there's lots of options, but N64 is hard. Yeah, It's hard to even emulate on the PC, so I'd love to see an N64 one. This one I'm not so bothered about because you can still pick up PlayStations for 10 or 20 quid. Or so. But I think a few comments I've seen on YouTube as well, you often forget how hard it is to kind of find the right cables to connect it up to modern TVs and even finding the games. Yeah, the upscaler is the most valuable thing in there, isn't it? Like, yeah. I'm in a lucky situation with a frame meister, but if you haven't got one of those, then you're coming out, you know, SCART or something. Or RF. Something yeah, yeah. Like, it's like a lot of those early 3D games, I mean, they were a bit janky at the best of times anyway, weren't they? So it'll be interesting to see how it does handle the upscaling, whether it does a bit of smoothing out of those, like, you know, jerky graphics and stuff but I think it's not really aimed at the retro gaming community I think these are aimed at people who probably had a PlayStation 20 years ago they've kind of moved on they might spot it in like Asda or PC World or something like oh yeah a bit of nostalgia it might be a stocking filler for someone but I don't think it's aimed at people like me and you who've got like entire rooms full of retro consoles no also I think it's Sony looking at Nintendo and going Oh, gosh, they're, they're, they're making a bit of money out of the old um, IPs, aren't they? Absolutely is that, isn't it? And some people have got really angry at them for that, you know, which is weird. Some people have been like, oh, they're copying Nintendo, it's outrageous. But, you know, how many ideas in video game history have been copied by other companies? <laughs> Definitely not the first or the last time. But it is going to be out by uh, Christmas this year, comes out start of December. It's going to cost £89, so it's kind of in line with the, the Nintendo consoles. No CD-ROM drive in there. That's the one thing that everyone keeps asking. Because it's got a little lid that looks like it could be a CD-ROM, but it's They'd too small. get those GameCube games in there. <laughs> that, that is about all you could fit inside yeah. it, I think. Or a mini-disc. But, but what used to be the eject button is now the game swap button. Okay. So you I, yeah, I wonder why they've got to have memory card support, haven't they, as well? I don't think there is. I think it's a 20 inbuilt game. If you've got Final Fantasy VII, you can't play the first disc in one sitting. <laughs> I mean, for it might, hours. I imagine it'll have I'd a save, it off. It might have a save function in there, maybe some NV kind of RAM or something, yeah. but... From looking around it, I don't think there is like a memory card slot or anything in it. Okay. So, I mean, that will kind of open up all sorts of vulnerabilities, <laughs> wouldn't it, you know, as we know from the Nintendo systems. But, I, you know, I actually think it's cool because, and I mentioned this in my video, someone who might buy one, it might kind of be like a gateway drug to get them into retro gaming again. They might be like, oh, I used to own a Mega Drive. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll pick one of those up and, oh, there's a retro gaming podcast on iTunes. Maybe I'll yeah, listen maybe, to that. So, maybe. You know, maybe there'll be a whole influx of new people at the end of the year. There you go. The PlayStation Classic has been announced and we'll keep an eye on the games list in future episodes of the podcast. Now, this is a pretty cool story that you found. Code cracking the World War II bomb machine. Now, this has been recreated at Bletchley. Yeah, so if you guys have seen the film The Imitation Game with uh, Benedict, Cumberbatch, who's basically playing Alan Turing. Yeah. Um, it's all about Bletchley Park and the war effort. And in the war effort, they created these first digital computers to decode all the secret signals that the Nazis were using. Mm. So they they had a, a an Enigma machine, which was kind of Hitler's personal communications device. And uh, they needed to break the code and crack that. So One of the most advanced codes in the world, wasn't it? It was one of the most advanced codes, yes. So when I first went to Bletchley Park, they had this marvellous machine called the Colossus, and Winston Churchill had kind of ordered people to build this beast, and uh, he built it and then got them destroyed after the war. Yeah. And uh, they'd rebuilt it by hand, and that was all running. So it was amazing to see one of those early computers Mm -hmm. running. Now, they rebuilt bomb and they're basically doing a reenactment of the kind of code cracking in Bletchley Park. And if you see the film, you'll see the dials 
spinning around and they're, they're constantly trying to shut the bomb off and uh, Turin's like, no, it will get to a calculation, it will get to it in the end. So you can actually go and see it finally reach that end of the calculation <laughs> if you've got enough time. Because so it can, takes ages, doesn't it? Well, you can sit there and watch essentially real code breaking in front yeah, of your eyes, yeah. which is uh, just pretty nuts, isn't it? Uh, now, a team of 12 people have apparently worked on this um, th- this unit. This is one of the original ones then they've got working, is it? Yeah, now they had it in one of the kind of lower where it was actually based originally in Bletchley Park. They yeah. had it in one of the low dark room with no windows or anything, but I think they've bought it up yeah. to one of the main museum places now. It's crazy though as well, because I'm reading a bit more about it here, and apparently like, you know, um, during World War II, the German army would reset and change the keys at midnight every night. Yeah. So they'd have to essentially learn it all the next day. So having such advanced code breaking, you know, 70 years ago is like insane, isn't and it? it? And so, it laid the foundation for yeah. modern computing and digital computing that we use now. Yeah, I mean, all, all your encryption keys and all that, I guess, kind of trace back to this. So it is fascinating. I mean, we often think of computer technology kind of beginning with like mainframes and, and you know, personal computers that came around the 70s and that. But, you know, you look at this stuff, it goes back way further, doesn't it? So, and it's all big spinners and dials and ching-chings kind of sounds. It's great. So it's on display at Bletchley Park if people want to go and see it. Yep. Okay, cool. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to find out more about that at the retro hour.com now we did mention a few minutes ago about this amazing atari jaguar vr now we you know we had um bill raybuck on a couple of weeks ago who used to work at atari and he mentioned how impressed he was at seeing this and there wasn't very many of them made this was essentially a prototype a couple of them made and it was meant to be a headset that would sell for home customers who had atari jaguars to play virtual reality games at home in 1994 so, very early virtual reality. And there are not many of these left in the world, but it turns out our good friends at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester, uh, just down the road from us, have actually got one in their possession now. And because we know these guys, we've got them on the phone. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Andy and Simon from the Retro Computer Museum. Oh, yeah, it's all right. Hello, you are? Now, I know you guys have got a lot of virtual reality stuff there because, I mean, we've actually been there a few times and had a go on the... Um, you've got the original virtuality machines. If people don't remember those, they're the ones you used to see on Games Master when they went in the consultation zone, aren't they? Oh, they're lovely when they work, but i um, be honest, due to the age of them, they are getting a little bit temperamental, but I'll do everything I can to keep them working. But uh, other than that, they are very popular. Uh, people are keeping them back for more as well, which is good. And it's amazing because they're, they're actually run off Amigas, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Amiga 3000s, yeah. Yeah, and you've found some stuff for the uh, rival company recently, Atari. Yeah, so you guys have got, I mean, for people that might not be familiar with this, the Atari Jaguar had a virtual reality system, didn't it? Yeah, made by virtuality, yes. It was made by the same people, and and that's how we've managed to come in, you know, in in, uh, possession of this Atari um, prototype, really. It's it's, it's really not like the other ones out in the wild. We we believe this is probably one of... um, it is one of several made, but it, is actually, it has actually come from the original designer of virtuality, a good friend of ours. So where did you find this then? Did he just find it in his garage or something? Or? <laughs> no, he, 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 when, he, when virtuality finished, he, he decided to keep um, a lot of bits and bobs and stuff he was working on in his garage, literally. And, you know, and, he, and, he's, and he, he managed to save quite a few bits. And over the last couple of years, he's actually donated quite a bit to, to the group, really, to, you know, to, to, uh, to the Retro Computer Museum and Retro VR. And because of that, you know, we know it's come from an original source that actually designed it, which is even more important. And the crazy thing is your museum is actually quite close to the original site of uh, virtuality, isn't it? Yes, it is, yes. Uh, obviously, we're in Leicester, uh, just on the outskirts of Leicester, and Virtuality Factory is just on the other side of Leicester Town Centre. 
So literally, we would have been about five miles from the original place. So tell us a bit about this Atari Jaguar virtual reality headset then. What's kind of the story of it and what kind of state have you guys got it in? Okay, well, it was designed by uh, Richard Holmes, who was the technical director of Virtuality UK. And it never really took off because I think the deal between uh, Atari and Virtuality started ahead a little bit south, especially in Virtuality, were almost out of business at the time, which was uh, obviously sad news in itself. So Richard kept a lot of the stuff which he did as a prototype stage. I've actually got a couple of prototype uh, Virtuality headsets for when he was designing the original machines as well. He brought the Atari Jaguar headset here to show us probably about a year ago a year now. Ago, yeah. And he definitely whetted our appetite because it was, he's telling us there, it was about one of about six or seven prototypes which we made and were taken to Japan for Atari to see. But Atari didn't fully understand at the time that there were only very, very early prototype stages. Uh, so it, they weren't in 100% working order as Atari expected. So I think the prototypes never got much further than that. And then Virtuality closed its doors in 1997. Richard was one of the directors, so he had the, uh, the job of clearing up shop and taking bits and pieces. I think a lot of the stuff he'd actually got at home anyway, because he was yeah. working on it at home yeah. as well. And uh, he's kept this one pretty much, I'd say, almost in mint condition since, uh, since the day it was created. Uh, the condition of it now, it's still very, very clean. Some of the foam for the headset itself, the, the padding is starting to deteriorate, but other than that, it's, it it's in really good condition. condition, really. I mean, what, one of the things we're going to be doing um, probably early next year is we're going to actually create um, a display area for not just the virtuality stuff, but for stuff that we've got here that um, obviously is quite, quite rare and, and um, a lot of our signed stuff will go in there as well. And we're going to have a place specially set aside for the VR stuff. You know, it's just as important as everything else. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's one of the things we've, we could have, could have a link with Leicester as well. We've, we've got to look after it all here. You know, we, we, we want to make a good, uh, good display of it. Yeah, excellent, guys. Well, we're going to be there in a couple of months as well, which uh, sounds insane that we're talking about the Christmas party already. <laughs> but you have got one coming up, haven't you? Yeah, yeah on the 8th of December. Yeah, tickets are available now. Um, hopefully it's uh, going to be a popular one. It's already, it's already proved to be pretty popular. Yeah. Quite a few tickets sold already. So, yeah, it's going to be a good one, that. We've got some live music as well now, we've just found out. So, yeah. live music and, and good food and, and good friends, it's all, it's all you need, really, isn't it? And a bit of retro gaming thrown in. Oh, yeah, it's always a laugh. Well, we'll put a link in our show notes if people want to get tickets booked. And uh, we'll be there as well, guys. So, we'll, we'll see you soon. Okay, okay see you soon. You Cheers. Thank you. Now, before we get into our special guest on this week's show, Lewis Castle, coming up in just a minute, talking about Westwood Studios, Eye of the Beholder, Blade Runner, Dune, Command and Conquer. A little story that does kind of follow on from the Atari Jaguar VR headset. It turns out they weren't the only company around the mid-90s who were working on virtual reality at home on a console. Now, we all know about the infamous failure that was the Nintendo Virtual Boy. Yeah, if you don't know about the Virtual Boy, it was kind of a... Oh, really, it was a, It was sold as a portable unit, but um, it had a weird stand, and you'd kind of sit it on your table, looking at it, and it was like pseudo three D uh, red. Yeah, <laughs> red, red monogram on everything. <laughs> yeah. And you had a gamepad with it. It was it was 
really uh, Nintendo's big failure, actually. 22 games were released on it, and it was on sale about a year, I think. Didn't even come out over here in the UK, did yeah. it? Uh, but what it turns out is, I mean, everyone kind of looks at the Virtual Boy like, oh, you know, what a disaster. They should have maybe done a proper VR headset. Well, it turns out that also at the same time, Nintendo had commissioned a company to work on a proper virtual reality headset that was scrapped in favour of the Virtual Boy. Now, this company was Argonaut, and Argonaut were famous for the Super FX chip. And yeah. When I first saw the Super FX chips in Star Fox, I was amazed. I was like, wow, that can't be done on the SNES. And it still ran a lot better than a lot of other consoles that tried to clone Star Fox at the yeah. time. So, Including the Jaguar, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know, this might not have been a bad 3D, actually. Well, this is a guy called Ed Jeremy San, who was uh, the founder of Argonaut. And it's an article that's been around a few places on the web this week. I mean, there's an article on the Metro, which is like where it's got most exposure. Not the best research article in the world, if I'm honest, but there is some interesting little bits in here. Now, it turns out they were working on a proper virtual reality headset called the Supervisor. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> they should have released that for the name I'm just going to go see my supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go in the other room. The Supervisor's called me. <laughs> uh, but apparently this was going to be a proper full-colour virtual reality headset that you would put on, proper VR games, and also it would have head tracking in there as well. Oh, awesome. That sounds good, but heavy. Like, uh, you know, if you had a SNES on top of your head and two CRTs, we've tried the ones, um, the old virtuality ones we were just on about. Yeah. And they have two CRTs in them, and that's pretty heavy, but the actual computer parts are away from you. So if this was a standalone unit, I'm, I'm not sure how it would be. See, it must have something extra, because the Super Nintendo couldn't do all that rendering on its own and the, the maths calculations yeah. for VR, you wouldn't imagine. But, I mean, it is interesting that they were working on this system that then they pulled the plug on and instead released the Virtual Boy. And this technology kind of went nowhere. I mean, he did try to offer it to Hasbro, uh, the toy manufacturer for a system that was going to be called the Toaster. But again, I mean, you know, VR kind of faded away, didn't it, in the mid-90s uh, for a few years. So it never saw the light of day, but it's interesting to learn what could have been. Yeah, it's a shame because, like, that that chip was wicked. Yeah. You know, and the games that came out with those just looked absolutely fantastic. So. Yeah, imagine having that in virtual reality. I mean, that would have been pretty well, mind-blowing for the time. Two super effects chips, or three maybe, to do each dimension. One of four. Go all the way. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to read more about that and the rest of this week's stories, you'll find them all on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. Now, of course, it is Adventure Month on the Retro Hour podcast. Uh, keep an eye on our social media over the next week. We've been looking through this book, uh, who have kindly supported this week's edition of the Retro Hour podcast, The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games. You can win a copy of that book right now. If you want to buy it, check out a bit more about it, please do have a look guys you'll find that at the retrohour.com you've been looking through for a game that you're going to play this week on, oh yes, on Facebook yes. and YouTube uh, either Simon 2 or Please Quest yeah and Ravi's going to need your help with these because you've yeah. been playing for a long time so keep an eye on our social media links you'll find all of those and more at the retrohour.com now to get into Adventure Month let's get on this week's special guest of Westwood Studios fame Lewis Castle You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is the start of the Retro Hour Adventure Month. So that means we're celebrating the art of point-and-click adventure games all this month. The new wonderful book from our friends at Bitmap Books, which is out now. And one of the contributors to the book is this week's special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Lewis Castle. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, before we get into, um, you know, some amazing stories, I'm sure, about Blade Runner, Command & Conqueror, Dune, Eye of the Beholder, games like that. I mean, where did it all kind of start for you then, this journey in computers and video games? Do you remember when you, you first encountered a game? 
You know, I do actually. Um, one of my friends, Paul Mudra, who ended up being our audio director, uh, had an Apple II, and I was looking at the graphics on the screen and uh, decided that I needed to be able to do graphics on computers. At the time, I was in fine arts and architecture, uh, and that led me down the path of getting a job at a computer store, and that led me to do artwork for games, and I changed my mind and decided to get into fine arts and computer science in uh, university. Were you really into fantasy games like D&D as a kid then? I was, yeah. In fact, actually, um, I think all the way from uh, just after primary school, I had ran a D&D campaign for 16 years. Well well into the time we had Westwood, we were still running our D&D campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you and um, Brett Sperry meet then? Uh, very, very much along the same path. Uh, when I worked in the computer store, Brett was a, co- a customer that came in regularly, and it was... Uh, his contacts that uh, got me the first kind of jobs to do graphics for um, educational games. And at that time, programmers were expected to do their own graphics. So um, so, uh, so it, it was odd to have somebody like myself who was going to just be an artist to make uh, little pixels move around. But the, the quality of the animation, of course, if you have somebody who has a love of animation and, and has a background in art, is considerably better. And so uh, I didn't have any trouble getting work after the first couple things. <laughs> Well, how did uh, Brett having to use a printer kind of lead to you guys forming Westwood? <laughs> yeah, that's exact. That's a good story, actually. So, so you know, he was just literally uh, at the store, and he wanted to do printouts, and there were some policies against printing things out. Plus, it was I think it might have been later in the evening or something. And he contacted me and said, "Hey, um, I've got a bunch of printouts I got to do for one of the games I'm working on." Um, you know, and I said, oh, I've got a printer. Come on by. Print it out. We can keep chatting. And when he came over, he was printing out, and I showed him some of the things I was working on. And uh, we started talking about what our plans were. He really wanted to make a, a big company that was successful. And I said, I, I remember distinctly just saying, you know, honestly, I just I really like this industry. I just want to have fun. I just want to have a good time. And so uh, so it was a funny place. Uh, we, we both ended up being you know, pretty deep into business at the end of the day. But uh, my, my heart in the beginning was just to have fun. <laughs> Well, how important was kind of getting the look and feel and presentation of the game when you initially founded Westwood? How was that kind of one of your priorities? It was for me. Um, I always uh, really leaned heavily into the arts. Um, I cared a lot about the quality of the graphics. Uh, so even from our very first games, Temple of Abshai Trilogy, I did most of the artwork myself, but um, as quickly as possible. One of the very first employees we had was an artist, uh, Maureen Starkey. We hired her before, I mean, as a full-time artist on a game studio that only had like five or six people, that was a crazy step. But I think later when we got Rick Parks um, and had his contributions and just his overall quality standard, I think it just really helped Westwood elevate um, the games that we were doing to a level that was uh, certainly at the, at the high bar of the industry at the time. Well, which systems were you using then, and uh, which did you have to learn to program? Well, I started on the uh, Apple II, uh, but I ended up programming um, almost everything, I think, at the end of the day. I, I ended up becoming a, pro- a very low-level programmer. I did a lot of our early 3D systems, um, renderers, um, some compression algorithms, voice synthesis, voice recognition. Uh, so as a programmer, I was a very uh, kind of the bithead guy. Uh, but as an artist, of course, I was more. I moved the other direction. I was more into art direction and didn't uh, didn't pick, you know plot pixels as much as I, I did in the early days. In the very beginning, I would actually convert my drawings on graph paper into hexadecimal and type them into the um, <clears throat> into into the machine code itself, into the mini assembler on the Apple. There were no graphics tools at the time. There were no mice. There was no way to get graphics into your system. There's no deluxe paint. So all those things came later and they, they helped the art get better and better. 
Well, in those early days, um, your hiring policy seemed really interesting. Kind of, you weren't hiring guys from the industry. Um, what was the idea behind this? Uh, yeah, it depended on where we. So it was difficult to hire people from the industry. Uh, most of the industry was in uh, L.A., but uh, mostly actually San Francisco, L.A., and some in in Austin. And so to get people to come to Vegas was was difficult. Um, and so one of the things we did was we we really wanted to make sure that we had craft leaders. And we believed, and I still believe, that um, a great artist is a great artist. So we put out ads for uh, anybody with 10 years of art illustration experience, professional illustration experience, could apply for a job as an artist. And that made for a very different kind of applicant. And most of the people who applied were, they didn't even know how to use a computer. They would come in kind of sheepishly and say, well, I saw this ad, but I don't know how to use a computer. And I'd go, well, I... I love your portfolio. I can I can teach you how to use a computer. I can't teach somebody how to draw like that. So uh, that got us a very different group of of artists, and I think it um, it set Westwood on a very different path than other companies um, having I mean, really truly amazing uh, artists like uh, Gary Freeman and and uh, of course Rick Parks as well. But um, lots of them, they're just did amazing work. Where did the name Westwood come from? So. That's a funny one. We were really, we had a, a terrible name when we first started. I think the first company was called Brellos, which is a, a, a horrible combination of Brett and Lou. Um, <laughs> so we didn't want to, we, that, we knew that wasn't very good. Uh, and at the time we were talking about, well, what do we want to have as a company? And I, I had a consulting business where I was doing um, programming for uh, really, it was really more about stitching together uh, spreadsheet programs and um, and accounting programs and such. So there was pretty pretty dry programming work, but it but it paid the bills. And so one of the things we wanted to do is make sure the company name was something that was flexible enough so that um, if if we ever got into other kinds of entertainment um, or we got into other kinds of programming, it sounded professional. At the time uh, in high school, I used to go down to Westwood, California, all the time, and that was kind of the hot spot at the time. And I guess it is now too, but um, but there was this whole period in the middle there where it wasn't so much. And that was kind of the area where you had attorneys and you had the entertainment industry, but you also had uh, UCLA, so you had a lot of young people. And so there was this great uh, vibe about being kind of current and fun. And that's where we came up with the name. Well, also you uh, did a lot of work with Epics as well. I mean, how important was that relationship to Westwood? That was critical. It's uh, how we started. The very first game we got was uh, Bob Lindsay gave us a chance, you know. Um, we were just a couple of people. We had a, a group of friends, but it was just myself and Brett at the time that we pitched Bob. and. Um, we said, hey, we've got a small small company we'd like to get going, and we're looking for contracts. And Brett had known Bob for many years. Um, he had worked for Epix as an independent contractor before. And so uh, they would give us our first contract with Temple of the Outside Trilogy. And uh, it was kind of funny. We got our first paycheck. Um, Brett hates this story, but uh, we got our first paycheck, and it was made out to Westwood uh, Associates, which was the name of the company at the time. And we were all excited because we got our first paycheck, and um, we kind of went and started thinking about it. I was like, well, how do you, how do you cash that? So actually we had to go get our fictitious name paper, file our business for our, our business license and do all that stuff after we had been paid. It's got to be the first startup <laughs> company that had money before it had a business. So <laughs> Amazing. Well, you said that you were into D and D and a lot of D and D games used to be kind of turn-based. Uh, now I had the beholder, which absolutely fantastic game uh, was a real time adventure kind of, how different was it approaching it? And did you think this would be a kind of risk doing a real-time game? Um, no, I don't think it, we felt much risk in that part of Eye of the Beholder. And, and we certainly didn't feel, we didn't feel there was any risk in real time. So 
uh, way back when we did the very first game, Temple of Abshai Trilogy, which was a port of the John Freeman games, uh, we actually, I was a programmer on that one and I coded the Mac version and we made that all in real time and Epic uh, Epics uh, kind of got freaked out about it and said, oh my God, you've ruined the game. You have to have time to decide. So we had to actually go back and put the blocks in to make the game um, turn-based. And so it was really funny. From the very first beginning of the of, of the company, we had this sort of affinity to having things happen in real time the way it would happen in a real D&D game where people are shouting out what they want to do and the DM is at reacting in real time. So when we got the chance many years later to work on a D&D game um, that was going to be a dungeon crawler, uh, which was Eye of the Beholder, it was, it was natural for us that we were just going to go back to that, that real-time component and try to get that to work. I didn't think we had the risk – we felt risk in the real-time. Where we felt risk was the complexity and depth of D&D as a system, trying to make that work in a digital medium without a DM to, to, to uh, mediate it was very, very hard. Um, it really challenged uh, myself and a few of the other uh, systems designers at the time to come up with how we were going to do all that, Phil Gore and others. Um, so, so I'm really happy with what came out. Uh, we we did definitely we super super inspired by a game um, called I think it was called Dungeon Master by Faster Than Light, which was on the Atari ST. Um, so they had they had definitely uh, sort of set the graphic bar higher. Um, many people said we kind of ripped them off. I'm like, well, if you look at their game, it looks an awful, awful lot like the games that we made five years earlier than that. So I, I don't think that's really the case. But at the same time, they they certainly set the bar pretty high. Well, it's amazing how those kind of dungeon crawlers developed from being slow, turn-based kind of stuff to like real-time first-person perspective. And it came out for so many systems. Uh, We were Amiga users, and we were massively surprised that the Amiga version was faster than the PC. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, that's another story. (laughs) Um, When we first got our Amiga, it was one of the very first machines, and... um, the, the documentation was uh, pretty poorly translated Japanese uh, for a lot of the low-level systems. And so at the time, um, I, I, I was the one who was in charge of the Amiga uh, libraries. We had to be a cross-platform company at Westwood to be able to make uh, the, the finances work. So uh, the Atari ST had come out. There was not very much ability to customize the operating system on the ST. Um, and it didn't have any hardware support as far as chips go. So we decided that we would write um, an emulator, the GEMS emulator on the Amiga. Well, to do that, we had to basically punt the uh, the operating system, the Intuition operating system. So I wrote a, a lightweight version of the operating system, and we wrote our own drivers for all the, um, for all the, the graphics chips and uh, the devices. And so for many years, the Westwood games on Amiga were outperforming uh, almost everything because we were really able to use um, the chips uh, Agnes and some of the other ones uh, Blitter and Copper um, so we were able to use those chips in ways that other companies couldn't uh, because of the, the the way that the operating systems kind of took control and, and managed those resources uh, so things like um, I the Beholder were definitely a benefit from our very low level understanding of how the Amiga worked uh, we did end up working playing nice with Intuition eventually but it was a lot more work to do that <laughs> I know Mastertronic were a, a really big label over here in the UK, um, who later became Virgin Interactive. I heard they did some of the uh, development work with Dune and then threatened to cancel that game in 1990. Um, how did you guys end up with um, such a, a groundbreaking game? Uh, well, so the, I don't believe they did anything on Dune 2. Um, uh, Virgin Mastertronic was the company that we, uh, that we licensed the Dune license from. Um, 
<clears throat> my favorite movie was Blade Runner. That'll come up later, I guess. Um, Brett's, Brett's favorite um, uh, book was Dune, um, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune. So when they when we found out from Martin Alper that uh, Dune was available as a license, we were excited about doing a game. And Martin had told us that they were starting development on an adventure game in uh, Europe, and they had decided they weren't going to do it. Um, but he was looking to place the license because it was a great license. So we jumped on it, and we took the idea of the uh, Arrakis and the battle on Arrakis, and we took our ideas of real time. And there were some games at the time that were really inspiring. There was um, Rescue Raiders, um, a game called Military Madness, and uh, Joe Bostic uh, was prototyping some real-time strategy games, and we had done all these strategy games for SSI over the years. So we had really understood how real how strategy worked inside of a, a game from a turn-based side, and we said, hey, just like it works for the role-playing games, we should probably do this with strategy games. And so the first real-time strategy game was born. Um, and it really was a, a bit meant to be as deep and as rich as the turn-based strategy games, but... Um, converted in such a way so that people could hack the cognitive load to be able to move their units around and still have a metagame. So all of that happened. And just about, I think, a month or two before we were going to release the, the game, it was called Dune, um, the guys in Europe said, hey, we finished the adventure game, we're going to ship it. <laughs> so the marketing decision at the time, because it was a strategy game, it wasn't expected to sell a lot of units. And so it was like, well, you know, we just call it Dune 2 so we can license, leverage the license so we don't have to go through a lot of approvals. Um, so that <clears throat> that's how it became Dune 2. Uh, the game was massively successful and it sold uh, many times more than what was expected um, and was pirated wildly. So uh, we know that many, many, many more times people played it than actually bought it. <laughs> so uh, it gave us great confidence in the idea of a real-time strategy game. And so we started working on the next one, which was going to be based on Swords and Sorcery. Um, it was called Swords and Sorcery, actually. Uh, and little little beknownst to us, uh, Blizzard was working on, uh, I had started, had seen Dune 2 and had started working on the first Warcraft. And so it was from that point forward, it was Westwood Blizzard, Westwood Blizzard, a few iterations there to kind of keep raising the bar for real-time strategy. Well, Doom really <coughs> kind of laid the foundations for RTS. Like before you had oh, yeah. magic and <laughs> casting, now you had economics and military. Um how how hard was it to kind of balance stuff like uh, units and factions? Extremely difficult, um, and it remains one of the hardest things to do in uh, real-time strategy games, because the you you always want a unit to feel powerful and interesting as its individual thing, um, and you have to have this escalation, otherwise it doesn't kind of carry you along. Um, it creates some some really uh, challenging uh, multivariant problems when it comes to system design. Uh, so yeah, it was really hard. And that's why Dune, the first Dune, didn't have much in the way of variation, not what you would call today, by today's standards, very different units. They, they did have some differences, but they were relatively minor. Um, and that carried through to uh, the first Warcraft and the first Command and Conquer to some extent, even though Nod and GDI were philosophically very different from a story point of view. Um, they both had tanks. They both had, um, you know, unit, uh, military, like kind of infantry. I think really until uh, Red Alert 2, with Yuri's Revenge, that a game was made where the three sides had to be played completely differently, um, but yet were elegantly balanced. Um, it was also very hard back then because you didn't have a live service to test the games on, so you had a relatively small test group, and once you launched the game, a lot more people would play it. So they would just uncover edge cases and and uh, uh, holes in your economies and immediately exploit them. So we had to chase the, the game with updates. Uh, also a very challenging thing to do back then for distribution reasons. So 
uh, it's a lot nicer today being able to have you know people connected online and being able to update games and keep the balance um, stable and fix things in, in a live environment test on live customers that that's all new stuff that's really powerful well let's talk about command and conquer i mean what a massive game that that really did yeah. change everything and when approaching that game i mean how did you like cast actors and decide on graphics and um, also create sound effects as well that must have been a big job it was um so the command and conquer was being built as the swords and sorcery game and as we were going along we we realized that we were going to hit the um launch of the cd-rom 700 megabytes which was um you know almost 700 times as large as the biggest piece of media, 1.4 uh, megabyte disk. So uh, we had said, well, what are you going to do with all this? And I know that, uh, you know, Joe was deeply involved in the in the game design and the balance, and uh, Brett Needy came up with a storyline around the uh, sort of biblical echoes of uh, of Cain and his, his brotherhood of Nod. And so <clears throat> we said, oh, well, what we should be doing, Westwood, even back in Dune, had these little animatics to tell the story and set the stage. We should be doing these as full video, full motion video with audio. And the problem is a single-speed CD-ROM just doesn't have very much data throughput. It's 144 kilohertz, I think. It's really, really small. And so uh, we had to figure out how to do that compression. So we brought some people in from university that that understood some cutting-edge uh, vector quantization that was going to go into some of the MPEG-3 stuff eventually. And then we built up on top of some of the compression algorithms I had written many years before um, that used a variety of uh, compression techniques. And I remember when when we were doing the initial um, videos, we had like a, a little dressing around the outside like a border, and Brett goes, it needs to be full screen. It needs to look like a, like a television screen or like you're watching a monitor. And, you know, we were explaining to him that, that how difficult it is because there's so little throughput. And he goes, oh, you're just being lazy. And this is kind of Brett's way to drive people. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I mean, he was right. We got it to work. So um, once we knew that we could do the video, we had to fill all that. We had all these, uh, all this, all this time to fill, basically, you know, many, many minutes. And so um, our CG artists jumped into it and started using Max to do some stuff. Aaron Powell and um, did some amazing stuff with early units. I mean, today it looks pretty crude, but at the time it was truly like earth shattering. Um, and so we were just really all homegrown stuff. Uh, as far as the acting goes, there was a local theater troupe um, we hired. The guy who ran it uh, was Joe Kukin, and he was he's quite a talented actor, and he's a great director. Um, he now has a theater troupe in Vegas again. And Joe was interviewing for all the different roles, and we were using local talent because we couldn't afford to go out and get uh, Hollywood talent for the for the first um, – or the very limited amount for the first CNC. So we were using a lot of local talent and people who worked at the studio. And Joe directed everything, and, and he was the one who – was saying, here's how Kane should be, here's how Kane should be. We went through many, many Canes, and eventually we just were looking at the tapes, and Brett goes, why don't we just have Joe do it? He does a better Kane than anybody. So we asked him, and he said, uh, yeah, I guess I can act and direct. That should be okay. And that's what set the, the stage for him being, I think, one of the greatest villains in video game history, actually. <laughs> I think Kane was amazing. So um, all hats off to Joe. He was he was our, our driving force for all that uh, cinematic wonder. You know, I think you made an interesting point there about the fact that you went from developing for, you know, essentially, well, for floppy disks that were like a megabyte in size, a CD-ROM being like 700 megs, it must have felt like an infinite amount of space to fill. I mean, was that a bit overwhelming when you saw, like, we've got all this... Yeah, we didn't, didn't take us long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we shipped Blade Runner on four CD-ROMs. Yeah. So I guess I guess really it didn't, uh, didn't take us long at all. A couple of years later, uh, you know, we couldn't even fit on one. So, um, but now, I, I, the very first time we were looking at CDs, we were just like oh my god this is 
this is massive. Um, and I don't think the first CNC even came close to filling it. Um, uh, certainly by by Tiberian Sun, we were using every every scrap we could find. Uh, part of the reason also was because the video had to be compressed down to that very slow bit rate, a very low bit rate of 144 kilohertz. So you can get quite a lot of uh, video on a on a 700 megabyte surface when you're only using 144k per per second. So so um, yeah, it was a huge amount of space and a massive a massive ability for us to put a lot of graphics and stuff out there. They were quite slow though, for, uh, single speed CD-ROMs. Nowadays we 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 tend to forget that because. Um, we don't even know the CD ROMs are gone, right? So we're all it's all solid state now. Well, the music as well on Command and Conquer was absolutely fantastic. And you mentioned yeah. Frank was your in house musician. Um, what was it like the first time you guys heard Hell March? Oh, amazing! That that show that that's why we put it on the on the trailers and everything else. And I think that was the one where people told me that they were and eagerly anticipating the next Command and Conquer game. And when they heard that it was Hell March, they got tingles. <laughs> Because it just it just it just hit every chord, and um, you know I think Frank's um, you know he's he loves funk and he loves the hard hitting rock, and so he found this this great voice for CNC that I think has yet to ever been, uh, and nobody's ever really come close to something like that. Where I think it's almost like a unique music genre that was invented for a game, and it just fits so perfectly this um, this feeling of uh, military meets modern age um, aesthetic. Uh, so, uh, again, you know, really, we were the fortunate, um, very, very fortunate to have aligned uh, with some incredibly talented people that that remain some of the most talented people I've ever worked with. Well, Blade Runner, um, obviously, that was a cult movie and uh, is, is to this day. And often video game adaptations of movies are a little bit hit and miss. I mean, did it kind of feel like there was a, a big responsibility to make Blade Runner a, a really good game? Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I love the movie. It was my favorite film. Uh, for so many reasons I could dive into forever. And um, when we found out, again, Martin had called us up. At this time, we were part of Virgin. And he said, hey, I just found out that there's a Blade Runner license being floated around, but it seems like we're quite late to the party. Do you think you can come up and give a presentation? Um, They'll be up here next week. And I said, Blade Runner, really? And he goes, yeah, I'm not even sure we can make a game out of this. It's an old movie and it's been a long time. I go, no, 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 we're definitely going to make a presentation. (laughs) So I went back and I grabbed um, Aaron Powell, who had done all that great work on CNC. And I said, dude, we have got to knock their socks off. We've got to show them. And, And I started thinking about what I would make as a game for Blade Runner. And I kept coming back to the point that Blade Runner as a film works because it's a detective story. Um, and it's a classic Ridley Scott where you're always feeling like the world is going to explode in violence, but it very rarely does. And it keeps you, it keeps you emotionally engaged and charged and you're just, you're exhausted by the end of the movie, but it's not, it's not like a James Cameron film or a Michael Bay film where there's constant action. So I said, I don't really know that we can make a game that feels like Blade Runner where you're running around trying to, to shoot replicants. That's the obvious video game choice. I said, but it, that would that feels wrong for the franchise. I think we need to make a detective story. And uh, certainly back then, the 3D technology wasn't at the point where you could do that as a uh, you know, point of view or third person running around an open world. But that would have been awesome. But it just didn't have that ability. So we were looking at our, our adventure tech. And I said, you know, I bet you we could take our adventure technology, adventure game technology, add voxels to it um, for characters and make them animated and constantly animated in real time, like we've done with the CNC stuff. And so we, we talked about, kicked around the ideas technically, 
So I was the technical director, I was the creative director, and then um, and the art director. And uh, Aaron put together the first reel, which was to duplicate the um, the work that had been done for the opening sequence. We got that put down and on a, a videotape, on a VHS videotape. That's where we were in the world. <laughs> Maybe a CD-ROM, but I think we had it on tape too. Um, might have been a beta SP. But uh, we went in and we talked to the lad group that, that had the license. And at the end of the, we showed them the, the first cut of the thing and it came down and we said, we're going to make a video game around this. We're going to do this, this, this. And he heard the music that Frank had done recreating the Evangelist. And he goes, well, where did you get all the assets? And I said, well, we made them all. <laughs> we made all the 3D assets and we made all the music because we didn't have any assets to work from. And he goes, well, if you can make the stuff that, that well, what do you need the film assets for? And I remember distinctly saying, well, we don't. We don't really need anything from the film. Um, we want to go find the actors and hire them because at that point we had started working with Hollywood talent. So we want to use the real actors and everything else. But at the end of the day, we're going to recreate everything. And that will give it that authentic feel because we have to create a lot more sets than we're in the film. And I think that might have been the thing that sealed the deal with them. It, unbeknownst to us, the license was quite sloppy. And there was a lot of documentation out there. And they really didn't know – if they were going to get sued by people because to finish his film, Ridley had um, reportedly uh, gone out and cut a lot of side deals and a lot of documentation was lost. And so they were worried that they did, that they had clear rights to music um, performances and video. So the fact that we didn't use anything from the film but recreated everything was a very clean um, legal legal space for us. And I found out later that people like EA and others had thought they were they were done. They, they had negotiated the terms. They were ready for signature, and the deal got pulled from them, and we ended up making Blade Runner. So were you guys going through the film and pausing it at every scene? Because the CGI <laughs> of the background is so accurate to the movie. It's insane. It's very close to that. Um, you know, we did. We were really took, we took the whole we took the whole uh, thing on the highest format we could get. I think they had a beta SP. Uh, we didn't have access to the the actual film because there's no way to digitize it back then. So, um, but we did. We literally uh, went through and tried to recreate everything as faithfully as possible, given the limitations of the 3D software at the time. Um, and then for the individual sets, um, it turns out that Blade Runner was shot in the back lot and. Uh, there's a lot of reuse of sets. It really was masterful in doing it, so you don't really see in the film very much. But if you pay attention, you'll find you'll see building after building after building, even when they're supposed to be very far apart. And that was actually um, that was actually the, the 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 fun of the of the whole thing was trying to figure out how we were going to add to this world. Uh, we had to make it um, about six or seven times, I think we used to say 10 times, about six or seven times bigger than what was in the film to make the game have enough locations for you to be able to explore for the detective story to work. So the long, long and the short of this was we, we had a really tough time recreating the look of Blade Runner when we weren't using exact replicas of the film. And the breakthrough was when we found the person who had done the, we hired Sid Mead, who was the, the visual, uh, the creative director behind it. And his stuff didn't really translate well, so we hired the guy who did, the who, who was in charge of the prop work that tried to translate Sid's visions into the film, uh, into 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 a set they could shoot. And he goes, oh yeah, we could never go out and fabricate all the stuff Sid did. So we just went to the storeroom, grabbed some old pipes, spray painted it pink, or 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 did this, and you know took some old girders and laid them sideways. And and I go, oh okay, so it's all this salvaged art look. And that's actually how we ended up doing. I went back to the art team and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You don't get to model anything. Here's a big 
big library of a bunch of stuff. Go build everything out of stuff that already exists. Stretch it, stretch it, shrink it, grow it, turn it, twist it. You know, there's scenes in Blade Runner the game that have the Eiffel Tower in the background that's been tipped over sideways, right? Um, and all of these sets had to be built, um, hacked together like that. And that's actually what gave the game the look of the film because we we duplicated the in digitally digitally we duplicated the process they used in the physical world to create the look. And the fact that this was all done in software as well, wasn't it? It didn't need any hardware acceleration? Oh, no, there was no hardware acceleration. Uh, this was all done as a, a renderer. So it was, uh, people used to ask us, how many polygons are you doing? This looks amazing. And I go, is, yeah, I, is, I can't, it's not, it's not done that way. Right? And so after a while of stammering and not being clear, I said, well, every pixel on the screen is effectively a polygon because it can be of any color and it can take light because it has a normal vector and, and everything else. And that got turned into some some outlandish rand, uh, um, uh, claims. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. <laughs> so so uh, t- today what we would, the closest way to describe it, it is quite complicated, but the way to describe it would be it's a deferred renderer. Um, so we basically did a, a looping video that was the, um, the scene, but that also had geometric uh, data as well. It had uh, um, Z buffer data as well as um, normal vector data. So that allowed us to composite multiple animated streams of, of video. And they, if one of them had a light, it could actually light up the other one. And that creates the environment where you can have a spinner fly down. You're watching a little looping piece of video and it's looping about every four or five seconds. And then you're thinking, oh, well, this is clever. They've got a little video loop that's done a good job of not looking too much like a... And about the time you finish your sentence, a spinner would fly down the street and the whole walls would light up and everything else. And you'd be like, oh, my God. And then you move your character in there and the character could be anywhere in the set and the spinner would go in front of him or behind him, depending on where they were. And then it became pretty obvious that this wasn't actually just looping video. It was actually much more complicated than that. Well, I think some genius parts of that game were kind of making the longevity of it and the experience of it. And each person had a individual experience, but you also expanded on the uh, storyline of um, Blade Runner. Right, right. We, we took it. We didn't want to change the film uh, because I felt like that that would be sacrosanct. And you asked earlier, what would you consider success? And if if the Blade Runner fans weren't trying to lynch me, I considered that a success. Right? <laughs> this is a very beloved property. If you screwed it up, they would kill you. You know. So the fact that we never we only got much a lot of praise really for it. We treated the original film as 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 gold and said nothing in the film can change. But we want to create a parallel story that allows you to play along. And be part of the events uh, before, during, and after the film. Uh, and that, that actually gave us the freedom to be able to have characters that could be replicants or humans, which allowed us to randomize some number of characters each game. And that meant that you had to actually be a real detective because you couldn't just go through the game and play it the same way. Uh, Johnny Wilson from Computer Gaming World gave me my favorite review opening line. He said, I played Blade Runner through the first time, as I always do when I review a game. And then I played it through a second time to to make my notes for the review. The first time I played it, I thought, yeah, it's a pretty good adventure game. That was, that was really well done. And as he played the second time, he said, this is a brilliant adventure game. Because <laughs> he couldn't get the game to do what he did the first time because he's playing completely different. So the game played very differently. And um, one of the things we don't answer, since a lot of people may not have played the game, we don't answer the story for the player of whether their character is a replicant or a human. Their behavior and their actions in the game set the um, set the tone, and the world watches the players, the NPCs, 
will trade information and tell the other NPCs what they saw. And so if you behave like a replicant, you're treated like a replicant. If you behave like a human, you're treated like a human. And that allows you to do some really crazy stuff. Like at the very end of the game, you can pretend to be the replicant's friends and save them all. And at the very, very end, when you're on the dropship to leave to go off world, you can just whip out your gun and kill them all. And there's a special ending there when you walk out of the out of the pod where Crystal Steel comes up and says, "I never knew you had it in you, Slick." So uh, it was it was it was really fun being able to play with things like that. And I think that's also what made the game really endearing is people would go and talk about it, and they would talk about their great experience, and they would realize pretty quickly that, like so many great emergent games, their experience was unique. It, it may not completely unique in the sense of. Um, Lots of people did very similar things, but the fact that you had something very different. Oh, wait, you ran off with Crystal Steel. I, I took Lucy as, as like a father-daughter thing and ran into the, what? What happened? You killed that person? And that kind of stuff just was awesome. It, it, really, it really made us feel great, um, seeing people a bit confused <laughs> about what the game really was. <laughs> well, I mean, was there ever any attempt to get Harrison Ford involved in the game at all? Um, we were told, and maybe we should have worked a little harder, we were told early on that um, from some of the agencies that he was very anti-video game industry at the time. Um, he felt like they would be replacing actors. You know, we tried to explain to those who were concerned that we need to hire a model of physical actor and a voice actor for every character we do, which, and then we hire an army of artists. So it's actually, we're employing a lot more people than a single actor. Um, but I, I think we really didn't try that hard to get Harrison Ford. Um, and I don't think we would have been very successful, actually. He was not a terribly big fan of the film at the time either, um, as well, well documented in the annals out there. Um, so uh, no, I, I, we didn't really work at it. Um, also, it would have been a, kind of awkward because we, we really wanted you to be able to be play your own character. So all the secondary characters were important for us so that you could we could ground your character in the same world. But the minute we would make McCoy meet Decker, um, I think it begs the question, why am I not playing Decker? Why do you think um, Blade Runner is such a cultural phenomenon then, and especially having a film coming out after 30 years later? Yeah, um, I just love the film. I, I, I was... Um, in high school as a, an art aide to run an art class and it ended up being that the, the the time lined up where we did a film studies class instead so my love of film went back to high school where i was really helping to write the tests and helping the teacher to teach the class so i had to learn a lot about film and um i, I never wanted to be a, a director or or something like that but i came to really appreciate what a hard job that is and and how the storytelling in that linear medium is um is really challenging and i loved blade runner because of its sense of immersion its sense of timelessness it still looked like a futuristic world it didn't date and age like so many other things did um and there's this really important moment to me that i thought was really profound the, the deeper part of you know what does it mean to be human i mean you know the more human than human is is a bit of a joke right or a bit of a a, a stick as it were because of course uh, the replicants behave more like human beings than the human beings do. So there's this whole idea of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have compassion? And when Batty, who is is obviously the antagonist throughout the entire story, switches to become the protagonist at the end of the film, who ha he's the one who has the real revelation and has the real change of character from a classic story structure and a film noir point of view, it was just a beautiful twist um, that kind of capped the, the whole theme. And I just felt it all hung together so well. And that's the thing that really made me feel like we had to do something that was narrative for the game as well, because it would have been just criminal to reduce a world that had such 
nuance and a, and a, a fiction that had such deep meaning for humanity into something that was, um, you know, whether or not I can get a headshot. Um, that's loads of fun, but it doesn't really fit the, the, the fiction. Well, I've seen lots of trailers recently for Cyberpunk 2020, uh, 2077, yeah. and uh, I could really see a remake of Blade Runner uh, being really <laughs> popular. Would, would you ever consider a HD version would, or anything? I would love to do that. Uh, sadly, all the assets are gone, so we'd have to start over. But frankly, we'd probably start over anyways. Uh, those were pretty low poly assets at the time. A million polygons in a scene was a lot back then. <laughs> um so I would love to do that. It'd be a load of fun. Um, there was a brief time where I was talking to the Alcon guys before the new Blade Runner came out, uh, but they ended up going with a different group of companies, so I wasn't able to participate. Um, I love the franchise, and um, I'm really looking forward to the, the Cyberpunk game. It's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, you know, maybe they'll have done all the things I wouldn't wanted to do, but maybe not. <laughs> And also, uh, one other question is, um, would you like to see a new Command & Conquer title coming out? Because I know I do. <laughs> I, I would. Um, you know, I was given an opportunity to EP a Command & Conquer game uh, before I left Electronic Arts. And, you know, the, the problem back then was it was 2008. And, uh, the you know, the world had crashed and there was a lot of really tightness on budgets. And the one thing I would say is I would only really want to see another Command & Conquer RTS game um, if somebody gave it the budget and the and the um, attention that it deserves as a franchise. Um, if you're not going out to build something uh, as stunning as a StarCraft II, then you, I would rather they not do it. Because <laughs> it's just, uh, I just hate to see great franchises beaten to death um, with poor budgets and teams that don't understand it, understand the brand. But EA owns the, the franchise. I know that people have talked about making games, and I'm hopeful that one day that that um, a, a you know big budget version will come out, and that they'll bring bring in some people that really understand the RTS space and, and understand what made Command and Conquer as a franchise different. I wouldn't want to see a clone of StarCraft II because they're very different um, expressions. Yeah. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, a lot of people are really kind of upset about the Command and Conquer uh, mobile game that they that they showed, and actually, I thought it was quite good. Um, I don't. I don't see anything wrong with taking a, a franchise that's as robust as CNC and coming up with alternative uh, game ideas that are that are kind of uh, harken back to the core elements. And I thought that as a game, mobile games maker as well as a uh, AAA games maker, I thought that the the mobile game had some really great aspirations. I haven't had a chance to play it, so I can't speak to the product itself. But but I was really disappointed in the fans getting so upset because. Um, you know, I, I think if you're going to do something, do it well. And if in the mobile space, I don't think that you would do a, a straight-up traditional RTS. Well, Lewis, it's been wonderful talking to you this week, um, especially to start Adventure Month on our podcast. And if uh, people want to hear more of your stories, you are in the Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games book, aren't you? I am indeed. And thank you so much for letting me participate in that. It was a lot of fun. Well, just one question just to wind up on. I mean, what, what do you think makes the point-and-click genre so special and beloved then? Uh, I think it's because it really reduces the um, the learning the learning curve for playing. So it, you you fall very quickly into an animated adventure or an animated story, um, and it really works well for narrative. Uh, there's something really magical about being in that third person and and um, having the character behave in a way that's consistent with the character's background. Um, I think we get there in some character games, like I think Overwatch does a really wonderful job. But I think part of the magic of, of these story games is that they are just so richly deep in story. And we love stories. I mean, human beings always have. Um, I'd like to see some of our action games get a little richer. 
I love the fact that Blizzard puts so much into the background of their characters for Overwatch because um, I, ca- I care about the characters. Well, Lewis, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And thank you for checking out this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast as we do Adventure Month with the Art of Point and Click Adventure Games, the new wonderful book from our friends at Bitmap Books. And if you head to theretrohour.com this week, you can get a look at this book, also have a chance to buy it or enter our exclusive competition to win a signed copy of the book signed by creative director and founder of Bitmap Books, Sam Dyer. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.